Matthew 5, verse 13, if you want to follow along as we continue on the Sermon on the Mount. We've, as you've noticed, and it happens a lot when you get into, especially the red letter, but all of it, uh, a lot of times you can just kind of hang on one verse for a while and kind of be mesmerized by how much depth there is, because it is God's revelation to us. We looked through the Beatitudes, and as we looked at that, we we saw that probably the biggest uh, mistake people make is uh, to see this as eight separate groups of people, that you have peacemakers over here and people who see God over here and poor in spirit over here, but it really isn't eight separate groups of disciples, but eight qualities of one group, what every Christian ought to be. So we looked at the first four of kind of how you enter into a relationship with the Father through the Spirit because of the Son. Uh, you know, poor in spirit, then mourn your sin, understand you need to repent and uh, come to him, then seeing yourself as someone who is meek, you know, your, your strength of character that puts him first, and eventually hungering and thirst for righteousness, which is why we worship for the most part. Last week we looked at being merciful, being pure in heart, being peacemakers, and being persecuted, kind of who we are and our attitude toward uh, how we're supposed to follow God. So, the Beatitudes kind of give us the essential character of the disciples. And remember, that is the audience here, is disciples of Jesus. Uh, these salt and light metaphors give us kind of how we're supposed to influence the world for good. Uh, we're going to hit that pretty hard today, not because I came up with it, because this is Jesus, and we're going to listen to what he said. So verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do, we, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you see this, this basic truth that's throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount is that the church, which means the people, not the building, uh, and the world are distinct communities. Um, that's throughout this all the time. Uh, kind of a binary way of looking at life. Those who follow Christ and those who don't. Um, and again, you know, you've probably had this before. There's a we, we went through the tactics class. We're pretty much finishing that up on Wednesday night, which is really good if you get a chance. It couldn't come to that. Greg Kokel's book called Tactics, which is an easy... Uh, that's a good one to go through to help. One of them is called, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And because people could say, well, so you think that there's people, there's only two types of people, those who follow Jesus and those who don't. It's like, well, yeah, I do think that, but I'm not the one that came up with this. Jesus thinks this. If you want to argue with somebody, argue with him. You know, so that's kind of, let, let them argue with Jesus. If you watch and you listen and you know who he is, they will lose if they're really seeking. So this is kind of always do that. You know, don't, I wouldn't even know if I'd say the Bible says. I mean, just say Jesus said this or the Holy Spirit said this. Then let them argue with God, you know. And they could say, well, they don't believe it's Jesus. That's another discussion, right? But that's what we're, we would go with. So the church has a double role as salt to hinder the process of social decay and as light to dispel the darkness. And these metaphors come through Scripture all over the place. So he starts with, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, we don't use salt as a preservative as much, although some people do. But it, we use this as a condiment, right? You know, um, we put it on stuff to make 
things taste better, you know. And, but back then it was primarily as a preservative, and even that word taste has more to do with hindrance than it does with how things flavor. So it's kind of a double thing they're talking about here. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but back in the first century, the refrigeration was really poor. They didn't have a lot of, uh, and if you're in the Middle East where this was given, it doesn't get cold that often. I, I heard that it was uh, under uh, 32 in Florida, which is not good for lots of stuff. So I hope the, I like my oranges and grapefruit too, so hopefully that didn't. But, but there it hardly ever freezes, and so you're not going to preserve things. You have to find a different way, and salt was the way to do it. So we see this throughout. So it's a restraining influence in society. That's the way God has set it up in a fallen world. We already see this. We see the state and home where he does this. And in Romans 13, you have rulers, which it says earlier that God puts in place, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the state's job. And I don't know if you knew that, but that's how America was instituted. It was a Judeo-Christian way of looking at church and state. Now, obviously, you look at this. What's the implication here? That when, when the state punishes, they, they're punishing evil and rewarding good. Now, we can probably get a whiteboard up here and start listing times when that might not necessarily be true. That's when you have to make a conscientious object. But this is their job. This is what it is. The ch it's not our job as a church to put people in jail, to take them to task for those things. That's, that is the state's job. That's the way God came up with it. Uh, and you also see this in the family. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He's just quoting Deuteronomy there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, restraining influence in the family. You know, does the church help with that? Sure. But I'll guarantee it's a lot easier if the parents are doing it too. Um, that's always, so you've got those restraining influences already that God puts into place, kind of a salt thing going on there. Preserving good and restraining the evil. But if you go way back into the Old Testament, you see this salt thing used. Um, I don't know if you knew it, but uh, salt was almost sometimes used as a medium exchange, like money. It's really important to have. You know, you would buy things with salt, which I guess if that happens again, you might want to buy some stock in Morton. We don't use it that much anymore. But here's a couple examples in numbers, numbers in Second Chronicles. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give you, and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. And this is the thing. This type of covenant is an ongoing perpetual. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. This is a metaphor, but they would do it. They would actually exchange the salt, sprinkle the salt on the altar as this is, this is forever. So, you know, when Jesus comes in and says, you are the salt of the earth, there's some foreverness in here, too. You know, I don't know if you knew Jesus was a Jew. And if you didn't, now you do. Um, uh, he's a Christian too, I guess, right? But he, he came as a Jew. In Second Chronicles, very similar, going back to that, ought you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David, forever to David, the Davidic covenant, and his sons by a covenant of salt. 
we look at this and like, well, what, and then you have this guy who we find out also is God, who comes on the scene and gives this sermon about salt, and really he's kind of talking about the fact that if you want restraining influence, you're going to have to start with me, which eventually gets him killed, which we'll talk about later. So the salt idea for them was much bigger than us. We're just talking about McDonald's french fries most of the time, but this is deeper. Don't you hate when they put too much on? You can always put more on, right? I wish they'd remember that. And the word translated taste here uh, also carries the idea of being foolish if things aren't tasting the way they should or the salt's not doing its job. So the, the very same word he's using for taste here is used in both Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became people who didn't taste the way they should, didn't look the way they should, didn't do the things they should. And then in 1 Corinthians, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's not doing what it's supposed to. That's what foolish means, not doing the things God wants. So really, if you think Jesus appears to be saying that his disciples are good for stopping evil for God as long as they're honoring and glorifying God as the goal or motive, that would be not foolish. You'd be doing the right thing. And that's the thing. It's, it's really hard for us to know other people's motives, right? But you can know your own, right? For the most part, you can know your own motives. And sometimes in life, we, we think about if we have bad motives, what, what should we do? I think I would pray, God, help me want to have better motives. <laughs> you know? It's hard sometimes. What is your motive? That makes a big difference. Now, people can not see your motives, but we can try. I mean, think of Jesus himself. What was Jesus' motive? What was his main motive, you think? Annoy people? Sometimes we think that. That's a pastor's job. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> but he did annoy people, didn't he? But that wasn't his motive. Um, what would we, I, I actually wasn't part of the sermon. It just kind of came to me. What would we say his motive would be? Let's have a little class here. I think there's one word that kind of comes out. Isn't it Love. I mean, that's, he, wants to, he cares about people so much that he's not going to let them stay where they are. If Jesus really believed that if you didn't have a relationship with him and access to the Father, that you were going to spend an eternity away from him. So God loved the world enough to send him and whoever believes will have, you know, John 3.16. It's love. That's his motive. And, and I think, what's our motive? Is it not foolish to not have the same motive? You know, when we're talking to people, is it to win an argument? Is it to make ourselves look better? Is it to make ourselves more feel more comfortable, or is it love? And boy, it's fun when those all go together, isn't it? <laughs> you have people in your life that you can love that also make you feel good and have the same motives as you do, and all those. That's why God kind of came up the church, in, in my opinion. So, so if we're trying to stop evil merely because of our own good or societies, you know, lots of places do that. We're really not useful or used by God. It's back to motive. You know, in James it says, without faith it's impossible to please him. Because even the pagans try to do good for society, right? I mean, and, that, and if we're trying to do good for society, I think we should walk, you know, and be with pagans. That's fine. But our motive is to honor God, number one. Because it, we even have that in our day age today, right? There are things that we believe about society that other people would see as detrimental to society. 
we believe a certain ethic about sexuality, which hinders what other people may believe, and people may look at us and think we're hindering society or stifling what they want to do. But again, what's our motive? If our motive is to make society better, that can just float around. Wait till we get to chapter 7. Shifting sands. If our motive is to honor God, we stay with the foundation, even if it's not popular. So we don't do it because it's not popular. We do it because it honors God, and then whether it's popular or not, it's, well, who are you trying to please? You know, that's what it comes down to. Now, the most powerful influence is to be his own redeemed. This is to disciples, people who know him. This whole Sermon on the Mount only makes sense if your motive is to honor God. The rest, it's just not going to make any sense otherwise. And Jesus' disciples will only be effective if they themselves retain their virtue. Uh, again, it's how you act because you're a believer. That's what he's trying to get across here. Now think about the effectiveness of salt is conditional, and you can see that. And if you want, you can turn to Mark 9.42. This is kind of a, it ends with the salt part, but we want to start a little earlier. Um, and remember in Mark, and he does this in Matthew too, little ones means my, my followers. It doesn't mean, you know, children's church kids. Uh, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever causes somebody, uh, a new believer or a believer in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown to the sea. So is God, is Jesus for or against causing someone to sin? <laughs> this isn't really too hard, is it? And this kind of ties into the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Why do we do the, these good things to glorify God? Well, this is what happens when we don't do good things. It causes people to sin. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's pretty serious about this stuff, isn't he? You know, again, do the things that honor him. Even if, you, you know, and I think we take this as metaphoric, right? Um, Grace Church doesn't advocate maiming yourself. Uh, so what does it mean to have your hand cut off? Or your foot cut off? Or your eye plucked out? Um, you know, don't touch, go, and look at things that cause you to sin, I guess. I remember when we were in Keokuk, we had the catfish bin. That was when you had to put the, the casinos on the, on the water for them to be. Now you can put them anywhere you want. You know, it doesn't matter. But, but back then, yeah, it had to go into the water. And, and we had a couple people that started coming to our church that really struggled with gambling. And I remember one of them came and said, what do I do? I said, don't go to the boat. Seems easy to me. If you don't go to the boat, then you won't gamble. I mean, anything else you need? <laughs> It's really not that difficult, is it? Because obviously we have to know our limitations, you know. Um, is that the unforgivable sin? No. But again, it, this is the thing. But then he goes on, for everyone will be salted with fire. Think of your french fries then. For salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, its ability to do the thing it's supposed to do, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another, which is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. So there's this idea 
that it's conditional. It only is helpful if you're trying to have the motive to follow Christ and do the things he said. Very practical, isn't it? You know, if people, you see that. People struggle with sin and keep putting themselves in the place where they keep sinning, and then they pray to God to take away the temptation. Or maybe get out of there. You know, just use some common sense. Uh, and also pray to God to help you. But what it comes down to, we should look different. You know, if, if Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, they're, they're useless culturally. They're living foolishly for themselves. And this is a good one, and we'll do this for both salt and light. We do this as Christians. I do it too. Um, you think out there, and you think, well, look what they're doing. Can you believe they're doing that in Washington? I mean, that, you know, most of the things in Washington are good, but once in a while they do something bad. You know, we always think about everybody out there, but it's, it doesn't make any sense if you take a piece of meat and put it out on the counter and don't salt it or refrigerate it, it doesn't make any sense for us to get mad at the meat for rotting. Does it? If the church is supposed to be the preservative of the, of the fallen world, we should be trying to do something to change that, right? I'm not saying it's our fault, but we can only do what we do, right? God set it up that way. We're supposed to be the salt. We're supposed to be the ones that preserve God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven as best we can. And what if, it, you know, we, you can look at the statistics now. They're not good as far as how much influence Christianity has in our culture. So does that mean we quit? Does, the, d does he all of a sudden, well, don't worry about being salt anymore. You, you're doing a pretty poor job of it. No, mandate's still there. You know, we do it to honor him. Sometimes the results aren't what we want, but, you know, if one person sees Jesus because of our actions, I think we're doing fine. So let's not blame the meat for rotting. It's going to rot without salt. <laughs> Colossians 4, 6, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. It's a great verse to start with. How are we supposed to walk towards outside? These are people who aren't believers. How are we supposed to walk? With wisdom. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's that salt again. You know, taste good, not foolish. We had that in the Bible study today. It does no good if somebody's <sighs> treating you poorly in an argument that you to do the same thing back to them. Do not be like them. Because, again, are you in this conversation because you love the person to maybe change their ways to focus on Jesus? Or are you in this to win the argument and show them how bad they are? If the Holy Spirit's working in their heart, they already know they're bad, <laughs> right? Our job is to lift them up at that point. Um, let God convict them to be bad, you know. Um, Jesus talked a lot about hell. We just read it, right? He, he does that, you know. But again, season with salt. Let's, let's, be, let's be someone that people want to approach, that they actually approach us because they think we care, not because we think we're better than they are, or we think, well, you just, you know, you just don't measure up. You know, it's all about grace, isn't it? So that's the salt part. Then we have the light metaphor, which permeates all of John's writings and certainly here in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world, which is interesting because I read in John that Jesus was the light of the world. And as I told the kids, we don't glow. So how does this work? How does this work? 
you know, you think about light is this universal religious symbol, right? In the Old Testament, as in the New, it frequently symbolizes purity as opposed to filth, truth or knowledge as opposed to error or ignorance, and divine revelation and presence as opposed to God's absence. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. So the true light is Jesus. We get this. You go way back into Isaiah 42, which is a very messianic text. Jesus does eventually, the Messiah is going to do with, with, what the Israel was supposed to do. I am the Lord. And if you ever see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. So you're not alone. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. That's such a cool one because, you know, when Jesus came on the scene in John the Baptist too, it's like the Jews thought they had it and the Gentiles were just these dogs that we don't deal with. But this is a light to who? Actually, you could translate that Gentiles. This is a light to everybody. That's what you're here for, not just Jews. And Jesus obviously hits that really well through the Jews. And then again, the one I just said, this actually is a quote from Isaiah that, that Matthew uses to show Jesus coming on the scene. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. It's such a cool Isaiah 9 passage. And then, of course, the quintessential one we get twice in the Gospel of John. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a really cool verse. What's the two first words he says? I am. You know what I am is in, in uh, Hebrew? Yahweh. You know, and I think they knew that. Wait, read the end of John 8 and see what they think. Uh, you know, they try to kill him. Um, why would you want to try to kill Jesus? I mean, he's just a nice guy. You know, they tried to kill him because he said he was God, you know, and he's demanding things from them. But that's the, that's where we start. He's the light of the world. Now, we show the light by reflecting it to others. We see this in Ephesians 5, by what we say and what we do. For at one time you were darkness. This is kind of poor in spirit stuff. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all the good and right and true. Or in Philippians 2, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among who you shine as light in the world. But look at that. We tend to take the first part of Philippians and forget the second. How do we be blameless and innocent? Well, we separate ourselves and don't get that influence in. We take that hand causes you to send to the very farthest we can. But what are we supposed to do? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. With different, and again, the light's going to shine, but it, he shines it through us. You've probably heard this theological, not really a joke, but story about, you know, Jesus. You, you think about the angels, and they're all kind of watching the crucifixion. And then, you know, Second Peter even says that even angels long to understand these things. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. So as this goes, you know, the angels are watching and, and, and you know, the Father has the Son crucified through the Romans and the Jews. And then Jesus comes back, is resurrected, hangs out for about 40 days, and then goes back to the Father 
And all the angels are there. And, of course, what do you do when Jesus comes? Fist bump. You know, whatever. You're very happy. And then, you know, Gabriel comes up to him and says, okay, this was cool. You did that. I mean, now we kind of understand. What's the plan? What do we, you know, there are all the angels here. He's like, what do we do? You know, we're ready. You know, ready to go. And Jesus says, well, you know that ragtag bunch of men and women that I kind of called? We're going to use them. And Gabriel kind of thinks and says, is there a plan B? <laughs> but that is his plan, you know, go into all the world and make disciples. He uses us, you know, and that's normally the way somebody comes to faith. Think about how you came to faith if you're a believer. Was it, and it happens, I've heard it. I mean, I've, there was people that have dreams and angelic visitations, and that's true, but that's not the norm, is it? And the norm is through people who already believe. Um, now, you can have the best testimony of your faith than anybody. If the Spirit's not working, it doesn't change anything. But if our light's not shining in the world, it's not going to happen for the most part. I suppose we could just step back and say, well, if God wants to save people, let him take care of it. Well, that would be disobedient, wouldn't it? Yeah, let your light shine. You know, that's what he's telling us to do. So as disciples of Jesus, you know, we cannot conceal the truth we know and hide it for ourselves. You know, Luke's version of this says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may not see light. We all remember the this little light of mine. You all want to sing it? Yeah. We'll do Kumbaya after. Uh, but, you know, the kids are all gone, so this is the one we want. We, 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 the idea of, you know, this little light, you know, hide it under a, no, you know. I mean, that, remember that. That's kind of what we're supposed to be remembering here. We cannot conceal the truth. And as you said, just try to do what you can. You don't have to get everybody to the foot of the cross in every conversation. Just treat them like someone that God cares about. Talk to them and see where God leads, you know. And again, just like the meat, we cannot blame the house for being in darkness when night comes without light. Our society without the church will be dark. We're supposed to be the light, which is quite a responsibility, isn't it? But we don't do it alone. Obviously, we have the Spirit to be with us. But this isn't ambiguous, right? This is easy to see. And verse 16, you know, lands the whole thing for us. In the same way, let your light shine before men. Why? That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So along with showing love for God, our obedience to him, can have the effect of having others glorify the Father. This kind of was the children's sermon, if you were listening. You know, because that's the number one thing. We don't be obedient to Christ so he will love us. We're obedient to Christ because he loves us and we love him back. That's what, in fact, that's what love is, right? 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the only Jesus somebody's going to see is you. And if you're picking a fight, you're acting like a pagan, you have no salty taste or preservative, and you have more darkness than light, that's not a good picture of Jesus. <laughs> Let's not do that. Doesn't mean perfection, does it? You know, or what's your motive? You know, the old, uh, we've used this many times, but when somebody asked Calvin, you know, how do I know that I'm saved? Calvin said, are you, do you feel guilty when you sin? <laughs> like, 
It's a pretty good way. It's kind of a negative way of looking at it, but it is. Do you, is the Holy Spirit convicting you? You know, do you want to do this? And I have the same thing as you. I mean, it's not every day when I think, wow, what can I wake up? Who can I help for God? You know, sometimes it's just like, what shampoo should I use? You know, it's not always the same thing you think of. But then again, even if you don't have that desire or motive, pray for that desire or motive because that should be a prayer that God wants to answer. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that then they speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like it's like, this is it. So it's not just loving God. It's that they see us and they look to God. Not us, but God. You know, and I'm sure you've had conversations. Like, why are you doing that? Or why are you not doing that? And I hope sometimes you say, well, because this honors God or this dishonors God is why I don't do it. And that's good in some of the, a lot of the social issues of the day, right? Why do you not want to engage in that type of sexual activity? Because I think it dishonors God. Why do you not want to do this particular act? Because I think it dishonors God. I mean... Who, who are we trying to please? You know, it's really what it comes down to. So the lessons from this passage. You should already know this, but hey, I'm doing the sermon, so we're going to give you lessons. There's a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. It doesn't mean we're better. It, does, it just means we're redeemed. We accepted the grace. This is theme is basic to the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be like them. We'll get that when we get to chapter 6. Jesus says we're supposed to be as different as salt is from decay and light is from darkness, that we're supposed to have this. And you notice this, he doesn't seem to take the uh, cop out that either A, we don't feel like it, or B, we don't have enough power. What would Jesus say to that? Yeah, probably say, have you been listening? <laughs> you know, I mean, you think about the the... The Great Commission, which ends this, this great book of Matthew, you know, go into all the world and make disciples. Now, we remember that, but if you know, it's always on our bulletin, some vestige of this. And how does one do that? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Wow. Now we have to get a pen and paper and figure this stuff out. <laughs> That's what you know, teaching each person to trust in Jesus, you know, that's what we're here for, to teach. Why? Because Jesus told us that's how you become disciples. And then did he end that with, and I'm just going to go up and set on the right hand of the Father. I hope it goes well. We'll see you later. No, I'll be with you always. And how does he do that? Well, read on. The Spirit who points us to Jesus and his word. So we're to be different. Not cocky, but different. And Christians must accept the responsibility that this distinction puts on us. The call to influence will only be effective if we realize that God has put you here in this place at this time for a purpose. It's not a coincidence. You know, you get to choose where you live. You get to choose uh, who you serve. You get to choose all wonderful things. And I think God allows us a lot of latitude in our life. But again, what are you here for? Bloom where you're planted is one way I've heard it. That's kind of cool, you know. We always think about, well, I wish I was here. It'd be easier, you know. If we had a church of the thousand people, then it'd be easier. And it's like, well, all right, let's get work, get to work, I guess, you know. Why don't we just worry about what we have instead of worry about what we could have and bloom where we're planted. Would the gospel be preached differently if we had a thousand? Would it be preached differently if we had ten? I hope not. 
Try to have less people to look at, I guess. But it wouldn't be a different message. But think about your own life, you know, especially, the, you know, if you're thinking about where to go to college and all that stuff. I mean, always think about that, you know, in your jobs and different ways and living and all that. You know, yes, there's a lot of just base things you have to think about, but how can I serve God where I'm at right now? You know, and, and thinking about churches, it's like, Yes, the church should serve you, should give you the gospel, give you places to worship, help you with knowing the word, teaching you, having a place to come together uh, and be with each other. But also think about how can God use you in that church? Because that's how we operate, right? You think, don't think about so much as calling that's out there. Think about your gifts. What do you like to do? That's God-honoring. <laughs> Better put that in there, right? It's tough to make a ministry out of something you like to do that dishonors God. But we can do it with the honoring stuff. You know, I mean, some of the best things we do in our church are because somebody had an idea, I can do this, and other people, well, I can help, and then boom. So always be thinking about that. It's not a coincidence that you're here. It doesn't be, I mean, I'm, don't, I'm not like clairvoyant with a crystal ball. It's just, this is just Bible 101. I mean, God providentially works in our life. How can we serve him best where we are? So we, and number three, we must see our Christian responsibility as twofold. There's a negative influence, arresting society's decay, stopping the spread of evil by how we act, what we say, how we treat people. And a positive influence, the light, promoting the spread of truth and goodness. We do that all the time, every Sunday, hopefully every day. And we'll end with this great qu quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, one of those good Lutheran theologians from the 20th century. Flight into the invisible is denial of the call. He's talking about the church there. Hunkering down and being separatist is, is not what we're told to do. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Can't be salt and light if we just hang out with ourselves. So I'll end with this, and it's, it's probably harder for me and, and maybe Aaron and some of the people that are, you know, that, that you know, these paid Christians that do this for a living. Um, who in the last week or two have you talked with that doesn't know Jesus? And there's times I can step back and think, ah, zero. Maybe I should get gas more often or something. I don't know. To find times when maybe you can rub elbows with those who don't believe because that's where the salt and the light is going to make the most difference. Let us pray. Father, we know uh, such great and pointed words in these few verses about who we are to be as individual disciples, but even more importantly as a community of faith that focuses on your Son. May our church always want to be that salt and light in the world, knowing that without not just us, but all believers in our community and, and the ones around us, we are the ones to arrest the decay of evil and bring that light that uh, only your son can shine in the hearts of people by the power of your spirit who is always with us. Amen.